Well, today I'm going to talk about uh, the thesis of the book. Actually, yesterday's talk was based on Chapter 1 of our Republican Constitution, and this is uh, based on uh, the next chapter, uh, which talks about how the Constitution was adopted to implement the principles of the Declaration of Independence. And that's why one is seen in light of the other. In 1787, James Madison had a problem. After living for 10 years under the Articles of Confederation, Madison had worked tirelessly behind the scenes to bring about a convention to devise a new constitution. And that is one of Madison's principal roles. He argued, he lobbied behind the scene. He particularly lobbied George Washington to join the convention because until Washington said he was in, this was all considered to be kind of a non-starter. But once he committed, then everything went from there because he was such a towering figure uh, that in those days. So Madison did everything he could to get his fellow Virginian Washington to agree, and finally Washington did agree. Um, in, in September of 1786, the year before the Philadelphia Convention, Madison participated in a preliminary convention in Annapolis uh, but not enough states actually showed up at that convention to accomplish anything. By, by, uh, by 1787, he had secured the support of Washington and also Ben Franklin, who was another major figure in, uh, in his later years, uh, to convene a constitutional convention in Philadelphia. And now the pressure was on the 36-year-old Madison. He's only 36. Before journeying to Philadelphia, he crammed for the gathering like a student for his exams from a chest full of books that had been sent to him by his friend and his mentor, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was 10 years Madison's senior. He was in, he was in Paris as a representative uh, to France, so he was not in the United States, but he did send Madison a chest full of books about political theory and history that Madison um, studied from, as well as his own extensive library. I actually recently visited Montpelier, which is Madison's home, uh, which is just south of here, um, and visited the very study in which he wrote the document I'm about to talk about. Now, the cerebral Madison had a truly fundamental problem to solve, which is why he was reading all these books. Like many others, he had concluded that the American regime governed by the Articles of Confederation was grossly inadequate and contrary to what the Virginia Declaration of Rights referred to as the common benefit, protection, and security of the people. But why was this happening? Why had the republicanism of the founding generation failed them so? For the previous 13 years, the people of the United States had been governed by 13 separate entities. State governments under the Articles of Confederation were thought to be Republican. The founders had thrown off rule by an aristocratic few in favor of rule by the democratic many. If under aristocracy, the many are screwed by the few, this is the way, this is the Cook County version of uh, political theory. <laughs> If under aristocracy, the many are screwed by the few, the Democratic or Republican alternative was premised on the belief that the people won't screw themselves. But this Republican theory, the people won't screw themselves, had unexpectedly proved to be false. <laughs> Yesterday, somebody tweeted one thing I said. My guess is that's what they're going to tweet today. <laughs> 
And for those, now I remember it, for those of you who want to follow me on Twitter, uh, I am uh, at Randy E. Barnett, so you're free to follow me. It's a, it's a bit edgy, but you're free to follow me anyway. Okay, so this Republican principle of the people won't screw themselves proved to be false. State legislators had begun enacting debtor relief laws that both undermine the rights of creditors and impaired economic prosperity, which rely, requires a credit market that can safely rely on the obligations of private contracts to collect from debtors. States also had erected a debilitating assortment of trade barriers to protect their own businesses from competing firms in neighboring states. The result of all this, and more actually, was a national economic downturn, a truly severe depression. You can imagine it would take something like that to get a new form of government up and running. So Republican government, as it had been conceived up until then, was clearly not working for the common benefit, protection, and security of the people. But why not? I should just mention in passing, not everyone at the day agreed with this. It was not a, it was a universal agreement on natural rights. There was not a universal agreement um, that, the, that the ills that the country was facing. By the way, there was a pretty universal agreement that the country was in dire economic shape. But there was not universal agreement about what the cause of it was and that it was caused by the existing Articles of Confederation. There were some people who thought it wasn't. So this is why there was actually a legitimate political contest to see that another constitution replaces the Articles, because there was a fundamental disagreement. I'm giving you one side. I'm giving you the Federalist side of this position. Um, why, had Republican, why had Republican government failed? To answer this question, in April of 1787, and largely for his own benefit, Madison composed an essay called The Vices of the Political System of the United States. It's really, truly a remarkable document. It's a working paper he wrote for himself. Later on, you know, he's famous for having co-authored the Federalist Papers. But those were documents that were aimed at public persuasion. Those were documents aimed to be published in newspapers to persuade the public to support the Constitution. They can, brilliant though they are, they can be dismissed as polemics, they can be uh, dismissed as rhetoric, as political advocacy. Here is Madison writing a document for himself. So I think that we can accept this is a sincere expression of his actual diagnosis of the problem and the attempt to figure out what the solution to that problem might be. In Vices, Madison identified the source of the problem in what he called the injustice of the laws of the states. Let's pause about that for a moment. The injustice of the laws of the states. This idea presupposes that state laws, duly passed by popularly elected representatives, can be unjust. Unjust against what measure? Against the measure of natural rights. So natural rights has to be there in order to figure out what's a just law, what's an unjust law. And he's figuring out it's an unjust law. The causes of that evil, the injustice of the state laws, he said, could be traced to the representative bodies in the states, and ultimately, he said, to the people themselves. And I'm quoting that, to the people themselves. This, he wrote, called, quote, into question the fundamental principle of Republican government that the majority who rule in such governments are the safest guardians both of public good and of private rights. Once again, the Cook County version of that is the people won't screw themselves. 
Those, you all know why I'm saying Cook County, right? Okay. I used to be a prosecutor in Cook County. So I grew up there. I was a criminal prosecutor there and uh, spent a year at the University of Chicago Law School after I was a prosecutor to clean up my language for academia. <laughs> it worked. It, well, <laughs> it works most of the time. Um, Madison concluded that we must be far more realistic about popular majorities than they had been up until that point. All civilized societies, he explained, quote, are divided into different interests and factions as they happen to be creditors or debtors, rich or poor, husbandmen, merchants or manufacturers, members of different religious sects, followers of different political leaders, inhabitants of different districts, owners of different kinds of property, etc., In a democracy, the debtors outnumber the creditors and the poor outnumber the rich. The larger group can simply outvote the smaller group. He said, the majority, however composed, ultimately give the law. Whenever, therefore, an apparent interest or common passion unites a majority, what is to restrain them from unjust violations of the rights and interests of the minority or of individuals? There's those individuals again. To illustrate the problem, Madison posed the following thought experiment, quote, place three individuals in a situation wherein the interest of each depends on the voice of the others and give two of them an interest opposed to the rights of the third. Will the latter be secure? The prudence of every man would shun the danger, he said. Likewise, quote, Will 2,000 in a like situation be less likely to encroach on the rights of the 1,000? In short, under the democratic version of republicanism, there is nothing stopping a majority of a polity from engaging in self-dealing at the expense of the minority. Madison concluded that what was needed was nothing less than a new Republican form of government that would address the weakness of democratic state governments while preserving popular sovereignty. As Madison put it, quote, to secure the public good and private rights against the danger of such a faction, and at the same time to preserve the spirit and form of popular government, is then the great object to which our inquiries are directed. Now, Madison was not alone in locating the evils facing the nation in the majoritarian democracy of the states. At the Philadelphia Convention, Edmund Randolph, our first Attorney General of the United States, observed that, quote, The general object, meaning the general object or purpose of the convention, was to provide a cure for the evils under which the U.S. labored. And then he said that, quote, in tracing these evils to their origin, every man had found it in the turbulence and follies of democracy. Elbridge Jerry, um, after which uh, gerrymandering was named, a, a politician from Massachusetts, stated, quote, The evils we experience flow from the excess of democracy. Roger Sherman of Connecticut contended that the people, quote, immediately should have as little to do as may be about the government. Governor Morris from Pennsylvania noted that, quote, every man of observation had seen in the Democratic branches of state legislatures precipitation, in Congress changeableness, in every department excesses against personal liberty, private property, and personal safety. Even those who remain more amenable to democracy, like George Mason of Virginia, admitted, quote, 
that we had been too democratic, unquote, in forming state governments. So at the founding, the term democracy started, the word democracy started to have the same valence to them as demagogue has for us today. Demagogues and neg- democracy is wonderful, it's good, it's actually better than any conceivable thing, right? That's what we're told. Demagogue, that's a terrible thing. But democracy had the same ring in their ears as demagogue has for us today. It basically essentially amounted to rule by the mob. At the conclusion of the convention, anxious citizens gathered around Independence Hall to learn what had been produced behind closed doors. It is said, perhaps apocryphally, that Ben Franklin, that as Ben Franklin left the building, a woman in the crowd asked him, well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? To which Franklin is said to have responded, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. But while the new form of government devised in Philadelphia was not a monarchy, neither was it democratic. Yet Franklin still called it a republic. This was because, in essence, the meaning of that term had just been changed by the men in the building from which Franklin exited. A republican constitution was no longer a democratic constitution, if it ever truly was. Now, in my book, Our Republican Constitution, I explain how these two fundamentally divergent views of the Constitution divide us even today. I call these divergent views the Democratic Constitution and the Republican Constitution, but I don't intend these labels to be partisan. There are political conservatives who hew to some aspects of the Democratic Constitution, many do, and some progressives who adopt aspects of the Republican one. Many people flit between conceptions depending on which happens to conform to the results they like. I mean, if you're with the majority on a particular issue, you sort of feel like the majority ought to get its way. If you're with the minority, you talk about the tyranny of the majority, don't you? I contend that what divides those who adhere to a democratic constitution from those who favor a republican constitution are really two fundamentally inconsistent versions of we the people that lead to two radically different conceptions of popular sovereignty. Those who adhere to the democratic constitution hold a different conception of we the people and popular sovereignty than those who adhere to a republican constitution. A democratic constitution views we the people as a group. And the purpose of a constitution then is to empower the majority of the people to rule. We the people as a group, and there ought to be rule according to the will of the people, and the will of the people can only be, in practice, a majority of the people. The preferences of a majority can't be everybody. So therefore, you need a constitution, a democratic constitution, in order to effectuate the preferences of the majority and thereby allow the people to rule. This should all make sense. I'm trying to say this as non-pejoratively as possible. This is just the way most people today think. In such a scheme of empowering the majority in order to give voice to the will of we the people, unelected judges are problematic because they are thought to thwart the will of the people when they invalidate laws that have been enacted by their popularly elected legislatures. Under a democratic constitution, therefore, the will of the majority should generally prevail and Legislation should not be invalidated except under perhaps exceptional circumstances. In contrast, a Republican Constitution views we the people as individuals. As the Declaration of Independence affirmed, 
we the people are endowed with certain inalienable rights, among which are the individual rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Then the next section, sentence of the Declaration says, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. As I said yesterday, not all powers, not unlimited powers, but their just powers from the consent of the governed. In short, under a Republican Constitution, first come rights, and then come governments. First come the rights of each and every person, and then comes government to secure these rights. Then to ensure that government is held to its just powers and doesn't go beyond that, the Constitution is put in writing to provide the law that governs those who govern us. Now, as I explain in several chapters of the book, our Republican Constitution secures these rights primarily in two ways. First, by means of federalism, in which the federal government is limited to its enumerated powers while allowing 50 states to adopt a diversity of social and economic regulations. I mentioned that yesterday. And second, by the separation of powers in which the national powers to make, execute, and enforce the laws are placed in separate hands. These are the primary ways in which liberty is protected uh, by our Republican Constitution. But there's another way. In addition to those primary ways, there's a secondary or fallback way, and that is judges who are servants, also servants of the people, have a duty to keep legislatures within what the Declaration calls their just powers by invalidating laws that exceed the enumerated powers and other strictures of the Constitution, as well as irrational and arbitrary laws. After all, we the people cannot be presumed to have consented to delegate to our servants in the legislature the power to irrationally or arbitrarily restrict the exercise of our pre-existing rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How many of you have heard of the Institute for Justice? How many of you have financially supported the Institute for Justice? Okay. They're heroes of mine. Um, and essentially, their entire legal strategy, their entire legal uh, approach is to identify irrational and arbitrary laws. Then they've got to get a judge who's willing to listen to the argument as to why those laws are irrational and arbitrary. But that's the core of what the Institute for Justice does. There's some other things they do. They do some taking stuff, which is an express law. But most of what they do to protect all the right of to people to pursue a lawful occupation, such as hair braiding or casket making or whatever happens to be the, the client's uh, uh, occupation, they're all attacked as being irrational and arbitrary. And then they simply need a real judge who's acting as a judge to hear the arguments for why they are irrational and arbitrary laws. That's a backup mechanism. Here's another way of looking at the relationship between the structure provided by our Republican Constitution and the express protection of rights, let's say in the Bill of Rights. And that is that the founders designed a ship. Consider the, the, the founders, or the, consider the framers. Actually, framers is better for this purpose. The framers built a ship, and they designed that ship with a structure that allowed the ship to float and it wouldn't sink. That's what a framer of a ship would do. And then after they designed the ship, they invited the general public to come on the ship. And they said, come on, on the ship, it's going to be safe. Bring us your, put your life and liberty and property under our protection. Come on our ship. And many in the general public objected because they didn't trust the structure alone. And they demanded that a lifeboat, lifeboats be put on the ship. 
And the framers said, you don't need lifeboats. The structure is going to work perfectly fine. The ship won't sink. So what's the life purpose of lifeboats? They're redundant anyway. And they said, you know, fine. We're not coming on the ship unless we get some lifeboats. So they said, okay, we want you on the ship. We promise we'll put some lifeboats on there. Just come on, say, buy your ticket, and then we'll put some lifeboats on later. And that's what they did. So they got everybody to agree to the Constitution on the promise. They would put the lifeboats on the ship. The lifeboats are the Bill of Rights. The lifeboats are the first 10 amendments that they then put on the Constitution two years later to assure the general public that their rights would be protected. But those were a secondary mechanism to protect the liberties of the people. The primary, the First Amendment, which as you all know, most of you know, was really originally the Third Amendment. The first two amendments that were proposed by Congress did not get ratified right away. Therefore, all the numbering had to change. So the First Amendment, um, protecting the natural rights of freedom of speech and free exercise of religion, that got put on as a lifeboat, extra, extra protection. The main protection was supposed to be the structural constraints of federalism, enumerated powers, federalism, and separation of powers. That's the main structural protection. So here's the thing. If you're spending all your time nowadays talking about the rights in the Bill of Rights, if that's what you're spending all your time talking about, it means the structures are not working the way they should. It means we're in the lifeboats. Now, were the anti-federalists wrong to demand the lifeboats? No. We're glad we have them. On the other hand, wouldn't we be better off in the ship? Being in the lifeboats is better than drowning, but we'd be better off if we got the ship righted, restored the structure of the ship, got back on the ship, and then put the lifeboats away in, for when they were needed. That's a way of thinking about uh, the three chapters of the book in which I talk about the structure of the Constitution that protects liberty, from, and then the final chapter, chapter 9, in which I talk about protecting the rights of the people by screening out irrational and arbitrary laws. Now, the with the death of Justice Antonin Scalia, combined with the Senate Republicans' refusal to consent to any nominee before November, this has raised the stakes on an issue that should always be at the forefront of a presidential campaign, but oftentimes isn't, the future of the Supreme Court and of our Constitution. As a result, selecting the next justice is already a prime topic of the ongoing presidential contest. But now is the time to be clear about the nature of the choice we face. Most today assume that the current divide on the court is political in the sense that the left side favors progressive outcomes and the right side favors conservative ones. But that's not really true. For example, when I argued the case of Gonzalez versus Raich before the Supreme Court in 2004, that was the medical marijuana case that was a Commerce Clause challenge, and I argue, we brought that lawsuit and I argued that case in the Supreme Court, you might have supposed that the left side of the court would have favored my clients who sought to use medical marijuana as authorized by California law, while the right side of the court would have voted against so, Ill, so liberal a drug policy. Yet, Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justice Thomas and O'Connor sided with us, while the four most progressive justices joined in opposition. We lost that case six to three when Justices Scalia and Kennedy joined the ranks of the progressives. What was at stake for both sides in that case, however, was not a policy dispute about marijuana, but a difference over constitutional principle. In particular, a principled disagreement about the sort of constitution we have and the proper role of judges in enforcing it. 
Do we have a democratic constitution in which the rule of the majority takes precedence against, unless expressly prohibited, and in this case, the rule of the majority was the majority who passed the Controlled Substances Act, the national law that superseded California's law? If so, judges should generally defer to the will of we the people, as expressed by their representatives, if you have that vision, the democratic vision. Or do we have a Republican constitution in which the rights of we the people take priority over the decisions of their servants in the legislature? If so, judges have a duty to ensure that the servants of we the people remain within the constitutional limits on their powers. In Raich, the liberal justices put their principled commitment to majoritarian rule at the national level above their compassion for the sick, the suffering, and the dying. And you kind of have to admire them for that. <laughs> Conversely, the three conservative dissenters put their principal commitment to constitutionally limited federal power above their abhorrence to drugs. And you have to admire them for that. Now, we cannot be sure why Justice Kennedy crossed over and joined the liberals because he simply joined Justice Stevens' opinion and he didn't write his own. But Justice Scalia made his reason clear why he voted with the majority in a concurring opinion. He didn't join Justice Stevens' opinion. He filed his own concurring opinion um, in which, under the Necessary and Proper Clause, he wrote, and the Necessary and Proper Clause, for those of you who don't, haven't memorized, says, gives Congress the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers granted by the Constitution to any department, the, the government of the United States or any department or officer thereof. That's the Necessary and Proper Clause. So the issue is what is necessary and proper under the Necessary and Proper Clause. He said under the Necessary and Proper Clause, courts must defer to Congress's judgment that it was essential or necessary to reach homegrown and consume marijuana to enforce its ban on interstate trade in marijuana. Congress has a power under inter to over interstate commerce, and Congress deemed it necessary, he said, uh, to reach intrastate production of marijuana in order to effectuate its interstate control. And the courts should defer to Congress's judgment of it, the necessity of the law. That was the key move they made. By the way, every other aspect of Scalia's opinion I agree with. And the only part I disagree with is that move at the end, which says judges must defer to Congress's own assessment of whether it's essential to its broader regulatory scheme in order to reach local marijuana. That's the part that we disagreed about. We said we were entitled to a hearing in order to have evidence to show that it wasn't essential. To the to, and, a, and a judge should, should decide that question. In this way, did Justice Scalia adhere to the central tenet of the Democratic Constitution, that is, judges should defer to the majority in the legislature? In short, in Rage, six of the nine justices exercised judicial restraint in, refer, in, in deferring to the Democratic will of Congress when it came to enforce the scope of Congress's power under the Commerce and Necessary and Proper Clauses. But three justices were prepared to draw a line at federal power to prevent citizens at a federal power to prevent citizens from producing and consuming a good on their own property for their own use, leaving the regulation of such activities to their states. They didn't say, by the way, that states may not prohibit it. That no, they didn't say the government may not prohibit it. They just said the federal government may not prohibit it. If it's going to be prohibited, it has to be state by state according to the 50 states. So in rage, six, six justices hewed to the Democratic Constitution, while three were prepared to enforce the text 
of the Republican Constitution. The same divide over the proper role of judges in enforcing our Republican Constitution arose 10 years later in the Obamacare case. But by then, the numbers had moved in a Republican direction. And as, you know, as Tom, I think, well, I guess he didn't say, but he might have mentioned that uh, uh, I was the principal lawyer, uh, one of the principal lawyers involved in the Obamacare challenge. And actually, I, as I talk about in chapter one of the book, um, I'm the one that came up with the idea of why the individual insurance mandate was unconstitutional. It was a blog post in September of 2009 on the Politico's blog arena that um, I decided to weigh in on and came up with this argument. And eventually, um, uh, I joined with some others to write a piece for the Heritage Foundation, and we had a and and at that point the the bill was uh, starting to emerge from the Senate, um, and we were trying to stop it. And Republicans, I mean, senators have a prerogative of um, making a point of constitutional order um, if something they think is unconstitutional. And we were told that the Republicans in the Senate were not going to object to the Obamacare law on the grounds that it was unconstitutional because they couldn't think of a constitutional objection to make. Uh, so the most important part of the Heritage Foundation paper that we did was not the public forum that we announced our, our argument with, and Senator Hatch was the keynote speaker for that, but the private meeting we had afterwards upstairs in which we explained to the staffers what our theory was. And at that point, at sometime shortly after that, the Republicans decided they would challenge the laws unconstitutional. They did. There was a debate on that question on the floor the day before the bill was passed on Christmas Eve. The way these debates always go is that they, people vote according to whether they like the bill or not. Well, they vote the constitutional issue according to whether they're for the bill or not, so that's the reason why these are all pro forma. But in this case, it served a very important function. Every single Republican senator voted that the bill was unconstitutional. That debate was held on C-SPAN. The public was then made aware, and the press was made aware of these arguments. Talk radio was made aware of these arguments. State attorney general were made aware of these arguments. And by March, when the bill finally was passed, by the House, the Senate bill was finally taken up and passed by the House. At that point, 13 state attorney generals filed a lawsuit on the basis of that theory, arguing that the, that the individual insurance mandate was unconstitutional. Eventually, that number grew to 28 attorneys general challenging law, more than a majority, a majority of state attorney generals argue, accepting our theory um, that the law was unconstitutional. In the actual outcome of the case, uh, the Obamacare case, called NFIB versus Sibelius. Um, the four more progressive judges were monolithic in their deference to Congress's claim of a power to require citizens to do business with a private company. But now four conservative justices, including both Scalia and Kennedy now, stood forthrightly in favor of the Republican Constitution and its limits on federal power. Now, as we know, the fifth swing vote was by Chief Justice John Roberts. As I explain in the book, and actually I should just say, the impetus for the book was the Obamacare case. That's why I wrote the book. Because my last book, Restoring the Lost Constitution, was about how the text of the Constitution ought to be interpreted, and I argue according to its original meaning, because the meaning of the text should remain the same until it's properly changed by amendment, and then what the original meaning of various clauses were. That's what the last book was about. But it turns out the Obamacare case shows that getting the meaning of the Constitution right is not enough. John Roberts conceded we were right. He said uh, about the meaning of the text. He said um, he affirmed our argument completely 
that an individual purchase mandate was beyond the power of Congress to enact under its commerce and necessary and proper clauses. He said we were right about that. And anybody who was in the courtroom that day who heard him read his opinion thought we'd won the case. Fortunately for me, I was not in the courtroom that day. I was back in my office at Georgetown preparing to write several op-eds I'd committed myself to and do a number of interviews. And I was following the case on SCOTUS blog, not on the media, because I got a text from my mom that as I was following it on SCOTUS blog and trying to write my reactions to it, saying, you know, she was so thrilled because we'd won because Fox News had announced we'd won the case. <laughs> CNN also announced we'd won the case. The reason is, is they read the, they got a copy of the hard copy of the, of the opinion immediately and they were skimming it and it just looked like we won because John Roberts had accepted all our legal arguments. And then he got, they got to the however part, to the but part. And I had to text my mom, and I said, no, we lost. She goes, no, no, it's Fox News says you won. And I said, which just shows how great my mom is. She listens to Fox News, uh, which was a good thing until recently, um, <laughs> before it became Trump News, and now we boycott it. Um, the, um, um, where was I? Anyway, so I said, no, I said, I said, I said no, no, mom, we lost. And she goes, and she, we were all very heartbroken by this. Um, so that's how much we won our argument. And normally, you, if you win on the law, you win on the, the case. That's the way it's supposed to work, by the way. You win the law, you're supposed to win the case. But we won the law, and we lost the case. So the question is, how did that happen? And it happened because John Roberts switched from the position of what the law, what the Constitution means to the issue of what the proper role of judges is. That's a typical conservative move. It's a, it's a typical move that everybody makes, but it's a move that conservatives make as well. And I wrote this book about what the proper role of judges is, which is to enforce the original meaning of the text of the Constitution. But to answer the question of what the proper role of judges is, I had to address the kind of country we have. Do we have a democracy in which judges should basically be seen and not heard? Or do we have a republic where judges are tasked with the job of protecting our republican constitution and the limits on federal power, and that's why I wrote this book. Because what John Roberts had done is he invoked the mantra of judicial restraint and adopted what he called a saving construction that turned the individual insurance requirement, the language of the, the act said it was a requirement that was enforced by what the act called a penalty, he turned that into an option to buy insurance or pay a modest non-coercive tax. He had to change the law from what he said was its natural meaning to what he said was simply a reasonably possible meaning. And he was obligated to do that, he said, because of his duty as a judge to let the people decide these matters politically. And it was not the job of the court, he said, to, to save the people from its own political sources. He said, granting the act the full measure of deference owed to federal statutes, it can be so read. And then he defended this move by insisting that, quote, it is not our job to protect the people from the consequences of their political choices. That's the mantra of the Democratic Constitution from John Roberts. Now, perhaps he expected this split-the-baby approach to be received by conservatives with equanimity, but it wasn't. Many on the right were outraged because they believed that it was the job of the Supreme Court to hold Congress to its enumerated powers and thereby protect the liberties of we the people, even from the majority in Congress who had passed the Affordable Care Act. In this way, the Obamacare decision, I believe, has become a, what turned out to be a political inflection point 
in how conservatives view the role of judges. And I say, I, I'm, I'm talking about conservatives knowingly here because libertarians have been the ones that have been more interested or open to an active judiciary to protect our rights from the majority, and conservatives have been the one who have consistently preached judicial restraint ever since the rise of the modern political movement in the 1950s. On the one hand, and, and, and on this sense, conservatives have been conflicted. On the one hand, unlike the left, they are committed to following the original meaning of the Constitution. And that particularly happened when Ed Meese came to Washington to be Ronald Reagan's attorney general, and he added a, a commitment to originalism to the normal conservative uh, uh, claim, uh, pleas for what they called strict construction and um, uh, judicial restraint. But in addition to their commitment to originalism, conservatives have long professed their belief in the doctrine of judicial restraint. And I talk about in the book how that, where that idea came from. In fact, what I say is that this judicial deference to the will of majorities was originally promoted by political progressives in the early 20th century, precisely to free Congress and the states from the constraints on their legislative powers that were in our Republican Constitution. As a result of Chief Justice Roberts upholding Obamacare in the name of judicial deference, the trend of opinion among conservatives, I believe, has moved sharply from what was always called judicial conservatism towards something that I think is better called and is often called constitutional conservatism. Now, these terms are not always used this way, but judicial conservatism usually refers to judicial restraint and not legislating from the bench. That's something that George Bush used to say. To constitutional conservatism, which favors judges enforcing the original meaning of the text, even if it means invalidating popularly enacted laws. With the judicial philosophy of the court now evenly divided, the next appointment is going to be crucial. For years, Democratic presidents have been adept at selecting justices who adhere without fail to the Democratic Constitution, with exceptions for the various fundamental rights and, and particular groups that they like, in which they'll give them heightened protection. So they're not consistent in this regard. But their baseline is, is restraint unless one of the favored rights is the one that's uh, threatened or at issue. In contrast, the record of Republican presidents has been deeply disappointing to Republicans. Appreciating the difference between the Democratic and Republican Constitution helps explain why this is so, why this has happened. By selecting judges for their commitment to judicial restraint and deference to majoritarian branches, Republicans have actually been nominating and conferring jurists who adhere to the Democratic Constitution in practice, at least when the chips are down, like in the Obamacare case. No matter how much conservative justices might profess a commitment to following the text of the Constitution, as Chief Justice Roberts did when he agreed with us that the individual insurance mandate was unconstitutional, they are always inclined to refuse to enforce the Constitution's text against Congress or the President in the name of judicial restraint, as Chief Justice Roberts did when he turned around and adopted a saving construction that changed the meaning of the statute so he could uphold it. And it is standard operating procedure for Republican-appointed justices in the name of stare decisis to adhere to a post-New Deal Supreme Court precedents that have overridden the original meaning of the Constitution. So many, many Supreme Court justices, when, during their confirmation here, Republican nominees, during their confirmation hearings and afterwards, say, there's the original meaning, I'm an originalist, except if there's precedent, I have to follow. 
and then I'll follow the precedent, even though the precedent is non-originalist. In fact, what Justice Scalia summarized that position, Justice Thomas, I should tell you, is much less inclined to follow precedent. He's much more inclined to follow the original meaning of the text. What Justice Scalia says in distinguishing himself from Justice Thomas, his, his good friend, what he said was, I may be an originalist, but I am not a nut, meaning I won't overthrow everything. And Bork said the same thing during his confirmation hearings, that, you know, the federal power probably has gone beyond what he called the original intent of the framers, but it's too late in the day to throw it out because of stare decisis. Otherwise, you'd be throwing everything out. So here you see conservatives using precedent along with judicial restraint in order to follow, is, to disregard and override the original meaning of the Constitution. Since Democratic presidents will never nominate a full-blown adherent to the Republican Constitution, restoring our constitutional republic will require a Republican president who will. A Republican president who will seek out judges and justices who appreciate the Declaration of Independence affirmation that first come the inalienable rights of we the people as individuals, and only then comes government as their servant. Justices who realize that the democratic will of the majority is not the solution to the problem of constitutional legitimacy, but, is in, but instead the majoritarianism of democracy is the problem for which we need a Republican constitution to solve. Think about that. People th oftentimes, and I hear this a lot from conservatives, put democratic rule, voting, as the solution to the problem of constitutional legitimacy. A constitution is legitimate if a majority votes for it. And yet, as we saw from James Madison's working paper, The Vices of the U.S. Political System of the United States, it is the, will, it is the power of the majority to get its way that is the problem that needs to be addressed by a Republican Constitution that puts constraints on that power. And then judges need to be there to enforce those constraints. In short, now more than ever, we need a president who will appoint judges and justices who understand that only a Republican constitution like ours can, if it's followed, secure the liberty and sovereignty of we the people, each and every one. Thank you. So, to the mics. If you have comments or questions, I have a feeling we're going to get into a lot of good stuff. This feels like it's on. Yes. Um, Identify yourself, please. Yes, Paul, uh, Paul Steger. Um, uh, I would like your comment to, um, uh, in defense of Justice Roberts, and I'd like your comment. He, he was told by the uh, Solicitor General that, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, you know, this is not a penalty. This is a tax. <laughs> the Congress called it a penalty because... It sounds better to the public. You can't call it a tax. So really, wasn't that Chief Justice's wasn't that Chief Justice's lynch to his decision by saying, you know, it's a tax. It's a stupid tax, but it's a tax, and it's within the taxing authority. That was the position. That was the fallback position taken by the progressive justices, the liberal justices, as well as by several uh, progressive justices below, uh, judges below, but. John Roberts said that the individual insurance requirement enforced by a penalty is unconstitutional under the Commerce Necessary and Proper Clause and also the tax power. That is, Congress under the tax power had no power to adopt the individual insurance mandate. That's what the progressive justices said they, he did, they did have the power to do. 
They had the power to do it under all of those powers, including the tax power. Roberts denied that. Yeah, because he said the only way he could uphold the law is by eliminating the required or mandatory nature of the mandate and give it what he, instead of giving it its natural reading, which is it is a requirement enforced by a penalty, give it what he called a reasonably possible meaning, which is that it's an option. Now, I have to say, in his opinion, he doesn't use the word option. But that is ultimately the logic of his opinion. The substance of it is you have a, because the, the actual penalty was set very low in the statute, he said it could be construed as a non-coercive tax that preserves the freedom of choice to either buy insurance or pay the tax. So it's only an incentive and it preserves the choice. And he said if the tax were, if the, if the amount had been too high and it became coercive, then it would be a penalty and therefore then it would be unconstitutional. So even in his opinion, he's, we actually won something in his opinion. Had the act been upheld on the progressive justices theory and the law professor, 99% uh, of the law professors theory, that it was legitimate under the Commerce Clause, then any penalty would be constitutional as long as it wasn't cruel and unusual punishment, which it wouldn't be. And that means the fine could be raised indefinitely and you could be put in jail for not having insurance. Like you could be put in jail for violating the Commerce Clause regulation on drugs. But because it was upheld under this saving construction, only a non-coercively, only a non-coercive level fine or non-coercive level tax that preserved choice was constitutional. And so in theory, now I don't believe in practice the court would actually enforce Justice Roberts' opinion, but in theory, Congress could not then jack up the amount later on to make it coercive in case people decided to exercise their option and pay the tax rather than buy insurance. So he did not uphold the individual insurance mandate. He upheld, now this puts challengers, this approach, this, avo this constitutional avoidance approach that he took puts challengers in a very difficult position because you not only have to challenge what the law says, you have to challenge any other possible misreadings of the law that are not what the law says and show that all of them are unconstitutional, which is really hard to do. It's like proving a negative. But that's the logic of his opinion of, on that day. Yes, you are. I'm Brandon Yates. Thank you very much. For from, that. from where? From Colorado Christian University in Colorado. From where? Colorado Christian University okay, thank in Colorado. You. Um, beautiful, most beautiful state in the, in the union, but I am biased. Um, my question is, you said that we need a Republican president to appoint uh, um, justices to the Supreme Court who uphold originalism. Do you think that any of Donald Trump's um, possible candidates match that description? Um, yeah, I do, actually. Um, the, the, the two judges, he, he gave a list of 11 judges, judge, potential judges. Um, I don't know everyone on that list, but the ones I do know I think would be good. The particular ones he mentioned during the debate were Judge Diane Sykes of the Seventh Circuit and Judge Bill Pryor. Diane Sykes was probably my first choice to be put on the Supreme Court. So somebody was giving him good advice as to who to name. Now, I have to say that um, even though I thought his list was quite good, there were people on that list who I don't know. And I'm actually quite skeptical of anybody on such a list that I don't know. That was my skepticism about John Roberts when he was nominated. For years, I was, you know, in federal society circles, I was hearing when people talked about future nominees about this guy, John Roberts. And my response to people saying this to me in casual conversation was, I mean, I actually didn't probably put it this way, but, you know, who the hell is John Roberts? <laughs> Only I would use the F word. Um, so. <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is because who is this guy? He doesn't. Sh I've never seen him. He, I've, ne I've never heard him give a speech. He's never shown up at a Federal Society talk. 
Um, I don't know who this guy is. And if I don't know who this guy is, that's not a good sign. And it turns out it wasn't a good sign, was it? And so there are people on that list I don't know, and I'm a little suspicious, but the people that I know on the list are quite good. Now, here's the problem with the Trump. I think, that, by the way, the number one argument for Donald Trump's election is the Supreme Court. There's no doubt about that. And there's no, uh, by the way, complete refutation of this argument. I'm going to give you a, another side, but I'm not claiming to have refuted this reason. If this is enough to get you to vote for Donald Trump, then you know, really, be my guest. There is no natural law that says there has to be a lesser of two evils, you realize. There could be equally evil, and then, then it's rational to vote either one, because they're equally evil. They're just evil in their own way. And the good news, I tweeted this this morning, the good news is that whoever wins, you're going to avoid the evil of the other guy. So that's great. Whoever wins. All the other evils, we're not going to have to experience, so that's, that's terrific. Somebody tweeted in response to that. Finally, an optimistic take on this election. <laughs> That's me. I'm an optimist. Well, anyway, so here's the thing about Donald Trump and, his, and who he might pick. What happens when somebody explains to Donald Trump that the, perp, that the function of a constitutional justice is to say no to Donald Trump? <clears throat> well, who will he pick then? I think it's easy. He just picks a constitu- a judicial, an old-fashioned judicial conservative who's, who doesn't think it is the job of judges to say no to popularly enacted laws or to the president. In other words, he just picks the same kind of judges Republicans have been trying to pick for some time now. And then when he does that, there's going to be a chorus of support for whoever he picks because they're going to be good Judicial conservatives, they're probably going to be sitting on the lower court somewhere, and people are going to like them, and they've been to Federal Society meetings, and they're going to pass inspection. So that's his option. Now, I still think, honestly, judges like that will, at the margin, be better than the judges that a Democratic president will appoint. Because it doesn't matter how smart and reasonable they are. When the chips are down, they all vote the same way. So I happen to be a big personal fan of Justice Kagan. I think she's super smart. I think she's very decent. She was very decent to me when I visited and taught at Harvard Law School when she was the dean there. And after that, we would go out to lunch, the two of us, on a yearly annual basis. There's no reason why the dean of Harvard Law School should have lunch with a professor at Boston University just to be nice. She just is. She was just. A, she's a decent person, very smart, and you know, had Justice Scalia uh, uh, stayed alive, you know, she was becoming his chief intellectual rival on the court. So she's great. Except, in every case that matters, she's going to vote the wrong way. It doesn't matter how smart she is. It doesn't matter how great she is. Merrick Garland was my classmate at Harvard Law School. We were in the same section. And he was one of the stars of the section. He was one of the gunners that would take off after the professors. He was certainly one of the three most memorable students amongst 140 students in my section. And he's a very decent man. Uh, I gave a lecture at the Supreme Court last fall on the slaughterhouse cases. He attended my lecture. Um, I like him a lot. He's a great guy. And he's really smart, super smart and reasonable. And you know what? If he gets on the court, he's going to vote exactly the same way as the most radical leftist um, that um, uh, a Democrat could possibly nominate to the court on all the cases that matter. Except I think in Merrick Garland's case, he's going to be a little more pro-law enforcement, which also might not be a good thing. So, then, so anyway, for all this, for, for these reasons, even if Donald Trump appoints the judicial conservatives that I oppose and who would give us Obamacare, like John Roberts, they still might be better than who the Democrats would be. And that still could be an argument for voting for Donald Trump. Thank you. Yes. Hi. Dan McGuire. As an aside, I can tell you I'm a restaurateur, 
the size of the penalty is roughly three times the cost of the insurance. So the concept that the penalty is small is just false. I mean, that's... <laughs> like many things. Yes, right. So um, my question was, during your discussion of your marijuana case, you implied that under the interstate commerce uh, power, it, it's fine for Congress to ban uh, interstate transport of marijuana rather than just regulate it. Is that so? Um, well, this is a... This is a question that requires a kind of technical answer. Um, and so let me just back up for a minute. When I litigated the Rage case, and also when I litigated the Obamacare case, I did not litigate either case on the basis of original meaning. I litigated both cases on the basis of existing doctrine, which is how you actually do these things. The reason why we won the law of Obamacare is not really because of original meaning. Original meaning is in the background. It's, it's reminding conservative judges that this is the direction they ought to go if they can. But it's doctrine that allowed us to really win that case. And under existing doctrine, uh, that began in, the, in, in 1903, I think the case is, and it's Champion versus Ames is the name of the case, um, and I believe it was 1903, it involved the interstate transportation of lottery tickets. And in that, the Supreme Court held that Congress could prohibit um, uh, anything, uh, it, it could prohibit as well as merely regulate interstate commerce, and it could ban the interstate shipment of lottery tickets. So under existing doctrine, the answer to your question is, yes, Congress can ban it. Now the question then arises, under the original meaning of the word regulate, can Congress ban it? And I think that's actually a very close question. In my book, Restoring the Lost Constitution, I kind of punt on that question a little bit, because I say that the natural meaning of regulate is to make regular. Uh, in other words, the natural meaning of a regulation is to say, if you want to do something, here is how you do it. Co the make contract law is a regulation of contracts. If you want to make a contract, here is how you do it. The law of wills is a regulation of wills and estates. If you want to make a will, here is how you do it. It's not the same thing as saying, you may not have a will, you may not have a contract. So that's the natural meaning of regulate. However, it's clearly true at the time of the founding that at least with respect to interstate trade, it was assumed that Congress had the power to ban interstate trade, not just regulate it, in two contexts at least. One is, in order to negotiate trade agreements with foreign countries, it was thought to be within Congress's power to threaten cutting off trade unless they get a good deal. So that suggests a power to ban as well, or prohibit. And, what, and Madison referred to this as a prohibitory regulation which shows how that's kind of contradictory. And the other context in which it was thought to be appropriate for Congress to ban interstate trade was with respect to slavery. Because you'll know the Constitution prohibited Congress from banning the interstate trade in slaves until, the, until 1808, which presupposed that prior to 1808, prior to, if it weren't for that limitation on its power, Congress would have the power to ban interstate trade. And the only power that in slaves, and the only power that would have existed to give it that power was the commerce power. So I told you it was a long, <laughs> Thank you. it was not an easy question, but it takes a long time to answer. Yes. Hey, um, Ari Blask from the Cato Institute, and I have a bit of a two-part question, but I'll pref uh, preface by noting that I haven't read your book yet, and I wouldn't consider myself an expert on okay. the founding at all. But I guess first, I wondered if maybe you could speak a little bit more about the role of the judiciary in the Federalist, Anti-Federalist debates, as in the, this notion of a conservative uh, judiciary versus a more activist one in preserving the Federalist conception of government play a role in debates over the Constitution's ratification. And then the second part, um, I wonder, you know, uh, 
you know, again, I'm not, not an expert on the founding period at all, but one of the more memorable things I've read is Gordon Wood's book about the, uh, about the Constitution. And sort of he has a similar sort of conception that he does, but is more critical because he thinks that, uh, you know, that there's a, a social problem, that, you know, the protection of property rights and, and you know, includes slavery and that the issues of denying a democratic majority, um, you know, by the elite. So I wondered if maybe you could respond to sort of that uh, understanding of the Republican versus Democratic uh, debate in the founding can you, as well. Can you say a little more about what you, the second, I, I get the first question, but yeah. could you say a little more about what you yeah, mean so by the second would, question? So, you know, in the, in here, the Republican versus Democratic is that we you know, need protection from, from the mob. Um, yeah. We don't have a full, you know, sovereignty isn't completely in the legislator. The, the flip side is, you know, maybe the, 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 so, and I'm playing devil's advocate a bit here, is that the, you know, the, they're, the, the, we're restricting, you know, the people uh, to preserve the power of the elite. That's what, you know, people on the other side would say. So I was curious, you know, how you might respond to that with, you know, more insight into the law and into the founding period. By the way, when you, when you, when you play devil's advocate, it does mean you're advocating the position of the devil. You realize that, right? Yeah, well, no, I'm just, just okay, curious. Okay, you know? I just, just want you to remember that. <laughs> sure. Whenever you, whenever you do that, that's what you're doing. All right, so... Um, uh, let me take the first question first, that is the role that judiciary played in the debates between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. It didn't play much of a role, as far as I know. Um, there were some Anti-Federalists who objected to the Constitution because it looked like it was going to empower these federal judges to do terrible things. So they objected to the Constitution because it created too powerful a federal judiciary. There's one in particular that said that. But it wasn't, I don't think, a widespread thought. And by the way, just the mere fact that it was an anti-federalist who said it doesn't mean it wasn't right. Really. I mean, it could be right. It could, the federalists are trying to get the thing passed, and they're going to minimize anything that might raise hackles. And the opponents might look at this language. They go, hey, look what this language says here. It, it actually says this thing. And, and the federalists go, no, no, it doesn't really say that. Well, it really does. And then they get enacted. It turns out it really did say that. The opponent was right. It, that could be. So, but it didn't actually play a big role. Madison himself didn't give judges much of a, a role. In his own thinking, he didn't give judges much of a role. Um, when it came time to do a Bill of Rights, um, Madison dismissed the Bill of Rights, a, a Bill of Rights, as being uh, what he called parch provided parchment barriers. And his experience in the states was they had a Declaration of Rights. Virginia had a Declaration of Rights. Lots of states had it, and they were violating rights all left and right. So basically, Madison said. These are parchment barriers. What we need are structural constraints. That's what Madison was about. Um, and he was dismissing the need for a Bill of Rights. And, and Jefferson wrote him from France and said, I think you overlook one of the values of a Bill of Rights is that it empowers a judiciary to stand up for rights in a way that they might not if it wasn't put in writing. Um, and, uh, and Madison was persuaded by this. At least he was persuaded enough as, uh, by this that as rep a representative from Orange County, Virginia, uh, I now have a home in Orange County, Virginia. I didn't realize, uh, maybe some of you already know this, but Orange County at the time of the founding stretched all the way through to Illinois. Orange County, Virgi or Virginia had a claim to territory all the way through Indiana and Illinois. There, at, the, at the Walmart near my house in Virginia, my, my second house in Virginia, there's a, big, there's a big chart that shows the original Orange County. I see it every time I go to Walmart, and this big red territory that was Orange County originally. I guess it was Orange Territory. Anyway, he was the representative from Orange County, and he fought for a Bill of Rights. He promised a Bill of Rights, 
He said, we promised a Bill of Rights. Then as a representative, he pledged he would get one, and he pushed Congress to get a Bill of Rights. And when he gave his speech defending the need for one, he said, judges will consider themselves the peculiar guardians of rights expressly stipulated for in the Constitution. And that's what he said in 1891 when he was defending the addition of the amendments to the Constitution. Um, so that was, so the, so I, but I have to say that judges were not given that much play at the, at the founding. Um, they, I'm telling you where they were given play, um, but they, it wasn't like everybody said, oh, yeah, the judges, they're going to save us from everything, because they knew better. They knew from the judges they had. They, and in fact, judges haven't saved us. The first line of restoring the lost constitution is, if judges had been doing their job, this book would not need to be written. So it means they're not doing their job. Okay, the second question, much more quickly, and this is on, you asked a quick question, but I'm giving too long of an answer. The second question has to do with the Gordon Wood uh, book, uh, The Creation of American Republic, what is it called? Who knows the name of that book? Creation? That's right. Something like that. Anyway, so um, uh, there's this whole, at at the time of the bicentennial of the Constitution, when everybody was getting ready to celebrate the Constitution, the left was, I think, a little uncomfortable by this. And they, they, they actually had a strong intellectual movement, starting with historians like Gordon Wood and others, uh, along with law professors, um, to what they call, have what they call a Republican revival, in which we would remember our Republican antecedents, and they were not what they said, they, they were distinguished from what they called liberal. Liberal, he, they said, liberalism didn't become popular, they said, till the 19th century, but in the 18th century, it was Republicanism, and by Republicanism, they meant a kind of Machiavellian theory of the community, and it was a very communitarian view. This is what Wood is advancing in his book. Um, and essentially, they claim the term Republican for themselves. It's as though if, and I have this, I get this reaction when I give this talk at Yale or Harvard, and some of my friends like Sandy Levinson or Jack Balkan are commenting on it. And it's like they have Republican with a little TM next to it. They now own Republican. That's their word. And if you use it the way I'm using it, they think I'm doing something wrong. I'm misleading the public. I should be calling, my, calling this our libertarian constitution, our liberal constitution, our anti-democratic constitution, but not our Republican constitution because they own that word. And my response to that is uh, Republican probably had a variety of meanings. I already told you that, at least in the original states, it was very democratic. And then they had a problem. And then they changed. And they adopted what Sandy Levinson calls in the title of his book, Our Undemocratic Constitution, which was part of the genesis of mine. And so they agree our Constitution is undemocratic, and they think it should be changed to make it more democratic. And I'm saying they called that Republican. So they'd either, either that was always the meaning of the term Republican, or they changed the meaning of Republican to incorporate this new approach, which represents our Constitution. And if they can call this a Republican, I'm entitled to call it Republican and call it for what it is. It's an undemocratic Constitution, and it's good because it is undemocratic. And that's my answer to them. Yes, sir. And I'm going to try to keep my answer shorter. Perhaps, it's not your fault. Perhaps just a little more commentary on the psychology of judges. They are very intelligent people. You could apply Some are. your intelligent. Well, oh, that's my presumption. Okay. Some you could, are. You could apply your intelligence to discover a correct answer, or you could apply your intelligence to justify or rationalize a prejudice or predilection. Your comment on how often which tends to occur, and how do the judges who tend to go by predilection or prejudice 
sort of get away with it over time without being discovered? Well, all I, I mean, very simply, I would say that if you have this notion of the democratic constitution, which presumes the legitimacy of majoritarian will, and judges should only get in the way of that under extraordinary circumstances, that gives a gold-plated um, justification for them upholding any law that they don't feel like striking down. So, and they're doing, and you know, and they're doing good when they uphold a law rather than failing to do their duty. So, it. it I wrote this book not, be, not to be, for a purpose, which is to explain how good, good, intelligent, committed people could lead us to the position where the Constitution doesn't provide a barrier to something unconstitutional because they have a vision of what judges should be, and this is what their vision is. I'm trying to explain their vision in a, in a light that's fairest to the, how they actually think with this alternate vision that... Generally speaking, they don't know about or they don't think about. Yes, sir. Hello, Simeon Cornegay, University of Hartford. And um, this quote by Supreme, um, Supreme Court Justice Scalia says, the Constitution is not a living organism. It's a legal document, and it says what it says and doesn't say what it says, what it doesn't say. Um, how can you make sense of this quote, and do you agree with it? Yeah, I do agree with it. I agree with a lot of what Justice Scalia said. Justice Scalia was the principal proponent of originalism. And even though he at one point called himself a faint-hearted originalist because he wouldn't follow original meaning in certain, if it went too far, um, he took that back in his later years and said he was not going to be faint-hearted anymore. But he always was faint-hearted, really. Um, he still was the leading proponent and defender of originalism on the court. He changed the practice of the Supreme Court. Before he became vocal, the Supreme Court's opinion, if you go back and read the opinions of the Warren and the Burger Courts, you're going to see they're all loosey-goosey, feel-good stuff, which has very little reasoning and hardly ever mentions the text of the Constitution. After Justice Scalia started carping about this, the entire court changed its practice, and it starts talking about the text of the Constitution a whole lot more. Um, he deserves a tremendous amount of credit, tremendous amount of credit for what he did, even though I have my disagreements with him, particularly what you know his judicial conservatism when it comes to precedent and stare decisis. But he was a hero. Now, in some, my my only real hero on the Supreme Court is probably Justice Thomas because he doesn't take this vision uh, uh, that Justice Scalia takes. Um, uh, but nevertheless, I think Scalia deserves a, lot, deserves a lot of credit. And I got to know him since I came to Georgetown ten years ago. I got to know him better. Uh, personally, and I grew very fond of him uh, personally. And as a result, the day that he was that he died, and I was I was asked to be on the CBS Evening News to talk about him. You know, and I had just got the call from the producers like 20 or 30 minutes after I'd heard the news. Uh, originally, I was going to go on the air, and then while I was on the phone with the producers, I decided I couldn't go on the air because I was too upset. Um, and so, I, instead, I went to a, bar, a local bar and I got drunk. <laughs> Yes. Good morning. My name is Dan Robin from Cook County, Illinois. From Cook County? Where in Cook County? Uh, Schaumburg. Schaumburg. Okay. That's kind of a tonier part of Cook County. I, know. <laughs> uh, I, was, from Cal I was from Calumet City, oh. <laughs> so I'm entitled to call Schaumburg Tony, okay? <laughs> Madison's view uh, that the states were impinging upon liberty, I don't believe, was solved by the original Constitution. Uh, it wasn't until the 14th Amendment, uh, which prohibits states from making and enforcing any laws which shall uh, abridge the privileges and immunities uh, 
Now, that's the first section. But my concern is the fifth section of the 14th Amendment. The question is whether when the fifth section grants the power to the Congress of the United States to uh, enforce the provisions of the 14th Amendment, could Congress reverse slaughterhouse or could Congress uh, prohibit the licensing of flower arrangers? Thank you. Well, first of all, the first part of your, your question made me think you read my book already because I have a whole, you read that book, good, good, that he read Restoring the Law's Constitution because I have a whole chapter about how it was the Republicans in the 39th Congress who gave us the 14th Amendment, 38th Congress gave us the 13th Amendment, but it was the Republicans who gave us the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and greatly improved our Republican Constitution because at the founding it was highly deficient insofar as it left states with enough power to authorize the enslavement of some of its people by others. That's a tremendous amount of power to leave in the hands of states. And the original Constitution did leave that power, and it was the Republicans um, uh, in Congress who proposed amendments that would qualify that. As for the scope of the Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, now, for everybody, as, as, the, as the questioner said, Section 1 begins, uh, no state shall make, well, it begins saying who's citizens of the United States. Then it says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Then in Section 5, it gives Congress the power to enforce the provisions of the previous four articles, including, our, including Section 1 of the, of the 14th Amendment, um, which notice, by the way, Congress felt it had to do, it had to expressly give Congress the power to enforce Section 1, because it wouldn't have, Congress would not have had the power to enforce Section 1 without Section 5. Same thing with Section 2 of the 13th Amendment, which expressly gives Congress the power to enforce the not Section 1, which prohibits slavery. Otherwise, Congress would not have had the power. This is an enumerated powers reading of Congress that the Republicans, in as late as the Reconstruction, still believed was true about our Republican Constitution. What exactly Section 5 allows Congress to do is disputed. Um, and I'm not going to give a definitive answer to this now. I will say that the principal um, law that Congress had in mind when they passed it was the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which did protect the rights of individuals to enter into contracts, to sue and be sued, uh, to be witnesses in court, and a bunch of other civil liberties that were called civil rights. And they were primarily private rights, um, uh, and uh, including the right of freedom of contract. That law had been passed under the, under the Congress's power under the 13th Amendment to enforce the 13th Amendment. Some Republicans thought, first of all, Andrew Johnson, the Democratic president who had been vice president under Lincoln, he vetoed the law on the grounds that it was unconstitutional because it exceeded Congress's power under Section 2 of the 13th Amendment. Some Republicans in Congress, like John Bingham, agreed with him. Even though they liked the Civil Rights Act, they thought that Congress lacked the power to enact it under the, under the 13th Amendment. So one of the arguments uh, that Bingham made for why we need a constitutional amendment was to empower Congress to pass a law like the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And then Congress, after that law, they reenacted the Civil, after they passed the 14th Amendment, they reenacted the Civil Rights Act to show that they, under, they had authority to do so under the 14th Amendment. And they enacted the Civil Rights Acts of 1870 and 1875. They elected a lot of Civil Rights Acts. So I would look to those as models of what they thought Congress could enforce um, and how they could enforce it. Now, the Supreme Court has held that Congress can't go beyond the meaning of Section 1, and it's up to the courts to decide the meaning of Section 1. 
like they decide the meaning of all sections. I mean, they, ultimately, they, in other words, Congress can't violate the meaning of the First Amendment, and nor can they violate the meaning of the first section of the 14th Amendment, and, if, and their Section 5 powers doesn't give them the power to do that. So ultimately, if the court says that the scope of Section 1 is limited to this, Congress can't add additional um, uh, protections that are not within the scope of the first uh, section, and it's ultimately up to the courts to decide what the meaning or scope of the section is. That's the city of Bernie case. Yes? Uh, Lorenz Simonis, UVA. Um, you mentioned that um, Justice Roberts actually found that Obamacare didn't pass muster under the Commerce Clause, and it's my understanding that actually the Commerce Clause is used to justify a lot of uh, federal uh, law today. Do you think that the Commerce Clause, based on Justice Roberts's reading, could be a viable tool for um, dialing back federal power in the future? Um, well, it, 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 yes, if Congress is prepared to enforce it according to its original meaning, which they're, I mean, sorry, if, sorry, Congress, if the courts are prepared to enforce it according to its original meaning, and the courts are not prepared to do that. So yes, like everything else, if the courts will follow the original meaning, it could be. There was some good Commerce Clause cases that we relied upon in Rach, the Lopez case, the Morrison case in 95 and 2000, that did provide a limit on Congress's commerce power without dialing it back, at least said he can't go any farther. And Rach arguably went farther, and then the Obamacare case didn't go any farther. So it can provide some limits, but we have to really look at the Constitution as a whole, I think, to get back to the original Republican Constitution. This will be our last question. Thank you, Joe Sedita, Buffalo. Could you give us a little explanation of how the Ninth and Tenth Amendments got excised from the Constitution? <laughs> um, <laughs> how, well, can, can you be a little more specific? That's, that's a little gen, general. So what, what's really provoking this question? That'll help me answer Well, basically, I'm, I'm getting the sense that Clarence Thomas is trying to resuscitate that law that there are residual rights that are retained by the people and by the states. I had the sense that Scalia at one point was saying, look, that's a dead letter. Yeah. Don't, don't try to make arguments about that. It, it just ain't going to fly. And, and I'm wondering how we got to that, to that spot. Right. Well, Scalia has definitely said that the rights that are talked about in the Ninth Amendment are not for judges to identify and enforce. He specifically said that in a dissenting opinion in Troxell versus Granville, and Justice Thomas was in the majority. I would not go so far as to say Justice Thomas was in favor of reviving the Ninth Amendment. or uh, He was in favor of reviving the Privileges or Immunities Clause, however, of the Fourteenth Amendment. And when it came to the unenumerated, but that was in the context of an enumerated right, the right to keep and bear arms that he was prepared to do. When it comes to unenumerated rights, here's what I will say about Justice Thomas. He's simply not as afraid of unenumerated rights as most conservatives are. And that makes him better than most conservatives. How far he'd be prepared to go, no one knows. He's never told us. But he's just not as intimidated or afraid of unenumerated rights and that seems to be the big bugaboo of conservatives, in part because what they hate above everything else is the right of privacy that was used to defend um, uh, Roe versus Wade. And Roe versus Wade is the, the point around which all conservative judicial philosophy is constructed. And if anything that you argue would suggest that something might be right about Roe versus Wade, 
or lead to another Roe versus Wade, or even lead to the, the uh, Obergefell case, then there's something wrong with your theory as far as conservatives c care about. And that's one reason why they have such a, dis uh, a dis they have such dislike and distaste for unenumerated rights, because unenumerated rights are what was used to decide Roe.